This is a conversation between Dot Cowell, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Sonoma Academy, and Dr. Rochelle Riodica, Head of School at the Independent Day School. And I'm Scott Donaldson. This is NAIS Member Voices, The Conversation. The Conversation is a dialogue between two colleagues at NAIS Member Schools and comes to us from the team at Independent School Magazine. In this episode, we'll be featuring a conversation between two educators that started a study group for APISA educators to discuss racism and working for social justice. APISA stands for Asian, Pacific Islander, and South Asian. I remember in our first conversation, we talked about why it was important to even have a space for APISA educators to talk about race and identity because we have found that in our predominantly white independent schools, and especially if there are not many other APISA educators at the school, there's nobody really to talk to about these kinds of issues that we are dealing with on a daily basis. And then we also recognize that with you know the George Floyd murders of 2020, there was this, I guess, this idea around how APISA folks can be involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think that's how we really started to talk about what is our role in being co-conspirators in other racial justice movements. Yeah. And I think for both of us, you know, since we're we're roughly the same age, growing up, the narrative was not that a piece of folks and black folks were co-conspirators in any way, you know, and that's sort of the the white supremacist narrative that we grew up with, that we were socialized with. And so it really required some, you know, some kind of intentional programming around that, given the need for us to support the Black Lives Matter movement at that time, uh, around February 2021. Um, So we ended up doing a a virtual community conversation, which is basically like a Zoom, you know, open event where we were able to be in affinity, you know, as long as you identified as an APISA educator, you were invited to that space. And we could really talk in a really real authentic ways about what what was possibly holding us back to be more involved in activism around Black Lives Matter, and also talk about sort of this wish for, and, and these these topics, you know, we were facilitating, but also came up somewhat organically, right? Like we re, it was clear that there was a true wish and desire and need for these spaces for us as, as just people, but of course, as educators. Well, it was, it was so interesting because in some ways, you know, as we were planning it, we, we came up with some essential questions to pose to the group. You know, we also wanted to be able to address this topic around anti-Blackness in a piece of communities, which I know can be really difficult to talk about. And then we wanted to kind of end with how do we see ourselves as showing up for our Black brothers and sisters in solidarity? And even just posing those questions to the group, I think it sparked so many other ideas and thoughts that allowed participants to really reflect mm-hmm. on their own racial identity developments and kind of identify 
the ways in which the model minority myth and white supremacy have really impacted their identity development, which I think is what really led us to creating kind of a more intensive, deeper look at these issues through our APISA summer study group. And, you know, I, I love your perspective, Rochelle, but for me, this was also a really emotional time. You know, COVID was really becoming re- real in, in the U.S. And there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment and violence out there, too. So, and it, you know, in recalling the timing of all this, about a less than a month after this community conversation, was the Atlanta shootings, um, which involved uh, about six, you know, eight people who were murdered, six of whom who identified as Asian women. So when the opportunity came to do that kind of more intensive three-day study group, I was invested. And I think I was like, I wanted to sort of take on the responsibility of co-facilitating that with you. And I'd be lying if I said there, I needed it too for me. Well, I mean, I think you bring up a good point because when those shootings, Atlanta shootings happened, I remember having feelings around it. I mean, I think so many of us did because of the ways in which our schools either addressed it or not. Mm-hmm. We we're starting to notice the ways in which we continue to be invisibilized in our schools. I think it, it really hit home for me about sometimes this racial hierarchy that happens that, you know, obviously is rooted in white supremacy culture, but it also made us realize how much more we as a piece of educators needed to, to really connect across schools, across, I mean, even across the country, right? Which is what I think made this first study group, though virtual, much more impactful because there was a real desire for a piece of educators across the country to connect with others around all of these issues. Yeah, I think we were, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I personally was pretty surprised at how popular it was. I think we were around 30 participants, possibly a little more. I think um, more. I think we were yeah. like 42 wow. participants yeah. on both coasts. Yeah. And even though it's the California Teacher Development Collaborative, like half of our participants were not in California, which was, you know, it shows just how badly we needed this space. So that was was something, you know, even though we knew, I knew, you know, we knew that this was a need, there was still this surprise of how interested people actually were, which I think also speaks to, you know, just like how we've been socialized as, as a PISA folks in the US since we were little. I remember there there were, I think some participants even who are from Canada, because I remember there were different, definitely different time zones. <laughs> yes. And I remember having, you know, for this particular study group, we had named that we were going to deconstruct the model minority myth using our lived experiences. And part of the work that we did together was understanding even how the model minority myth has impacted each of us, how we've internalized it in many ways, and even the regional differences. Because I remember our participants from from Canada were talking about their uh, racial socialization and how different it may have been from somebody who was born and raised in the United States. 
Mm-hmm. So even just some of those regional differences were really, really interesting to talk about. Yeah, it, regional differences, I think generational. There were some folks who were, you know, third generation in the U.S. And then there were some people who were the first generation. And being able to kind of share, there are still, though, so many commonalities, but also like enough differing perspectives to to make these conversations like really fruitful. One thing I think that we were both really intentional about was not only kind of picking apart the narrative of the model minority myth, but also really looking at Asian identity development and sort of looking at things that, like, as you said earlier, were, are really hard to look at, right? The anti-Blackness, the colorism within our own communities. And though I found that for many people, including myself, these were some of the longer, more sustained conversations I've ever had on those topics in my whole life. Well, I think there's something to be said for being in an affinity space where you can have these conversations more safely, right? Because then you're, you know, you're exploring and reflecting on things that, that you may not have even thought about before. And I think one of the things that we wanted people to walk away with was giving them the time to do this kind of reflection, mm-hmm. right? And in particular, because so many of us talked about how we didn't grow up in spaces where where we talked about race, particularly because our, our, our families or our parents are, are immigrants to the United States. And so even that whole immigrant mentality had an impact on how we saw ourselves. You know, I remember hearing from some participants who talked about not learning their native language because their parents wanted them to learn English so that they would be assimilated much more easily and accepted at school, for example. You know, like all of those experiences that people shared and reflected on, there was definitely some painful memories. And I think these are things that people had never really discussed in a safe space. So I feel like just being in in a space where there are experiences that are very similar allowed people to talk freely and to talk authentically about their experiences. The idea of sort of like a larger sense of a PISA affinity in an independent school has always felt really elusive to me because, you know, like we were talking the other day, we kind of know that we're never going to be in a majority in our workplace. It just really brought to the surface how crucial this space was because other than this, it's really the people of color conference that's once a year. I mean, essentially the other thing too, that, you know, you and I have talked about is that leadership in independent schools is even more rare for PISA folks. So even just being able to kind of look to this group and and hear stories was just so critical. To your point around leadership, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself and say that I, this is my first year as, as a head of school and it's really meaningful and special for me as an APISA leader because there are not many heads of color in independent schools in general. But also I think about what is my role now in supporting other APISA educators who are at my school. And I'm thinking much more critically, you know, right now I'm in a school where it is predominantly white. It's a small school and there are only 
three of us who identify as PISA educators. And so we don't have a huge critical mass. Um, we do have, you know, a number of families who identify as a PISA. But I think a lot about, well, how am I going to support the families and the students and the teachers around this work so that they also feel seen and valued and heard and feel like they belong at, at the school? Yeah. And, you know, I don't I don't think this is necessarily like unique to the PISA community in the U.S., although you know there are nuances. But this idea that part of our identity is erasure, right? The idea that like we don't really count or that we are, you know, quote, close to whiteness. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think this came up. You know, this comes up in a lot of conversations I, I have these days, you know the statement, uh, wow, sometimes I forget you're not white, right? I'm sure you've heard that before. I've heard that before, you know, either to me or to someone else. And it's really easy, you know, and we can put ourselves in the shoes of our students and our families at these schools, just like, you know, it's painful to feel erased or unseen. And whole, you know, the space was critical also because, it's painful to talk about basically being invisibilized yeah. and you need, you know, almost something that it, it's too, it, it's so vulnerable. You almost have to talk about it in infinity, not necessarily, but like it sure helps. Well, it's, it's hard to talk about it when you're not in a space, when you're in, you know, I would say cross-racial spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't know if people will even understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I remember we talked in our affinity space about even this idea of exceptionalism, yeah. which is so tied to how we're seen as the model minority and how it's been damaging to ourselves, right? Because in many ways, we either have internalized it or we don't re recognize that we've internalized it. And it's kind of caused us to be more in proximity to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the aha moments for some of our participants was even recognizing their proximity to whiteness because of assimilation. And, you know, we, we pushed our participants to really talk and think about how does the proximity to whiteness impact their ability to build relationships across different racial groups? I remember that was a difficult conversation to have because in some ways, you know, it's also tied to geography or the places that you live or the friendship groups that you have, mm -hmm. you know, or the colleagues that you perhaps collaborate with more when you're at school, right? So. All of these uh, different spaces that we asked our participants to really think about and reflect on um, mm -hmm. were really, I guess, thought-provoking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I so when we, you know, we we completed this three-day workshop, right? And we, I, I felt really, I mean, it was so powerful. You know, 40, 40 of us kind of coming together on the heels of a lot of anti-Asian sentiment in our culture. And, and then it was sort of, we, we broke off into summer and then, you know, sort of the, the next year went by, which is arguably one of the hardest school years many of us have ever experienced. 
And then we went for round two. So we did it a second year. <laughs> Rochelle, what were what was sort of on your mind as we were planning for part two? Because things were different. Yeah. The world was different totally. again. Totally. Things were so different. You know, I think it was really helpful to also have the participant feedback from the first study group, mm-hmm. because then we were able to see, okay, what did they want to talk about even more? What didn't we have time to do? And what was really helpful? And a lot of participants talked about just having smaller group conversations was really helpful because you were, they were able to kind of dive a little more deeply into some of their own personal stories and actually have that, that a space of comfort when you're only, you know, sharing these personal and vulnerable stories with a small handful of folks. I think what I was thinking about for part two is kind of diving more deeply with this idea of colorism within the APISA community uh, because it's very real, right? So even, even as we are considered to be a monolith, right? What does that actually mean? And how do we, as a, as a large group, how do our differences and the, the different histories that we have and the different politics that we have affect even us within the APISA group, right? So I know we, we focused a little bit more on South Asian populations, Pacific Islander folks, because we really wanted to focus on the brown Asian experience, you know, which is something that I identify with uh, being Filipino American, you know, because I, you know, I did grow up with understanding this hierarchy around, around color. And also, you know, our countries, if you were colonized versus countries who weren't or countries who are considered first, first world versus third world, right? Class differences. There were so many different things that really affected even just our various uh, ethnic groups within the APISA community. Yeah, I know. I remember it being really important for us too to bring in other voices, South Asian voices specifically, um, because we felt like that kind of was a little bit lacking in the first year. And it was really moving. I mean, it's hard to have a panel on Zoom and like, you know, keep it engaging, but it was one of the most engaging panels that I've ever listen to, you know, whether it's, you know, someone speaking about being undocumented and being in the Asian community in an independent school, right? Or a Vietnamese woman being in administration, right? All of these different intersections that we didn't quite have time to cover in in that first iteration of this workshop really came through. And, And I feel like the feedback there was, you know, this is really powerful because we don't actually get to hear very much from, for example, uh, you know, an Asian woman in in leadership in administration. And I think one of the things that you and I reflected on as we were trying to put this panel together was I don't want to say difficult, but it wasn't like super easy to think of people that could speak to this identity as independent school educators. I know, which is which it was like just having the, the, the challenge of putting the panel together made us realize how much more important it was to have the panel, you know, mm-hmm. um, because their voices and their experiences um, really resonated with our participants. And like you said, so many of them were like, this is the best panel we've ever listened to. And I remember some participants saying, 
you know, usually on a Zoom panel, you know, you're off kind of like your cameras are off and you're, you're you might be doing something else <laughs> as you're listening. And I remember nobody's camera was off. Everyone was on camera and everybody was listening intently and so engaged in the stories. And I think what made it so powerful is that we we asked our panelists to really focus on telling their story and being honest um, and vulnerable. And I think that that level or that kind of storytelling really grabs people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there were so many level levels of vulnerability that we all had to kind of put on to be part of this program, even as simple as like being really honest about what we don't know about ourselves and our own culture. That was a big one for me as a facilitator of this group. Like I am not someone who studied Asian American history or even really had a a strong interest in that until after college, way after college. Right. And so I remember the moment you put up a slide of like, you know, I think it was like Grace Lee Boggs and you were like, you asked, does anyone know who this is? It was something like that. It was, it was, and I think maybe like, I don't know. It was not very many people who knew, who recognized the photo or would even be able to say like why she is relevant. Moments like that, you know, make me realize like just kind of, again, like this invisibilized nature of our own history in this country. But also I think it did like, I don't know if the word is validate, but essentially made me feel less bad. Right. Um, Because then there's that layer of guilt. Why don't I know more? Right. That wait, maybe this is actually a thing. Like we're, we're not taught this. We're not taught that this is important. And, you know, we would discuss as a group, like, yeah. And that is wrapped up in white supremacy. That is what wrapped up in the model minority myth, right? Asians aren't supposed to be activists. Well, I think that's why, I mean, you bring up so many good points there. Like, that's why it was so important for us to host these workshops and study groups is because we were trying to, well, number one, empower other APISA educators to be activists, right? To to learn about their history and their culture. And to your point about not having known about these Asian activists and our history into adulthood, you know, we really try to impress upon our participants that as educators, it's our responsibility to make sure that every student that we work with knows our history, right? Because now we are in a position where we can teach students about this. And, you know, none of this is is by accident, right? This was all in terms of the way our educational system is, is developed and, and, and structured, you know, we, we weren't meant to learn about other people's histories, which is unfortunate, right? So I think now that we have the freedom to be able to craft their own curriculum, you know, how important it is to make sure that we include other people's histories as part of American history so that our children and our youth grow up knowing who Grace Lee Boggs is, knowing who Yuri Kuchiyama is while they're kids and not wait until they're, they're adults. Exactly. And, and for those of us who are adults now who didn't get that, like, we want to create these opportunities for us too. <laughs> there was a moment where I was like, wow, you know, I, I really had to catch up in my 30s and 40s that of everything I 
this self-teach myself, right? Everything that I wished I had been taught when I was in school. Well, so, you know, you had mentioned something about as a facilitator, you also learned some things about yourself. Do you want to say a little bit more about how you think you've grown in this work Mm -hmm. as a facilitator? Yeah. So, you know, it, it... That's a really good question, Rachel, because it makes me think about my role as just a DEI director as well. There are a lot of people who don't really see Asian people as the right fit for a DEI director. And I've heard the rationale as, well, you're not the majority minority, which, you know, it's an interesting argument because we will never be the majority, you know, rarely, right? At least where I live now in Sonoma County, like I'm not going to ever be in the majority minority. So what else does that exclude me from? Right. And so I think part of doing this work, you know, and it goes back to that community conversation, like identifying, self-identifying myself, like I'm an ally, right? Or that I am worthy to be an ally, that I'm ma- I matter and I'm visible enough to be an ally and a facilitator in this kind of work, right? Even though on the sort of like oppression Olympic scale, like I might not fall where some people think I need to fall to do this work, right? And getting over that and kind of taking ownership to, to lead in this work, I think has all happened concurrently with with these APISA educator workshops, the community conversation, and ultimately, you know, take deciding kind of to take this role as DEI director in a predominantly white institution. So I think there was, you know, there was that validation, but really it's like feeling more, I don't know if the word is confident, but actually I think it is, it's what it is, is I have convinced myself that I have a right to do and care about social activism, racial activism, and like DEI work, period. Right. So, so that was kind of that, that whole, this whole process of like, no, I actually do have a right to have that be part of my identity as an Asian woman. Yeah. I mean, there were so many moments of learning. And I think one of the things that I really enjoy about being a facilitator and not a presenter, so to speak, is that you're you're facilitating conversation and dialogue and people's learning while also doing your own learning, right? So I always see these moments of facilitation as two-way streets where where I'm learning just as much as you know the person who is taking our workshop because. Really, I think the way that I I learn and grow as a facilitator is by understanding other people's stories and seeing other people's perspectives, because there are so many ways and so many nuances in the work that we do around race that, you know, everyone's story is unique, you know, and there might be common threads, but the nuances are are what matter and what make the work challenging and complicated, but also really important. I think what you said about, you know, the oppression Olympics and perhaps not being, you know, the face of what a DEI 
leader is supposed to look like. It's like, well, who's decided that? And what does that even mean, right? And where is that all, where is that rooted from? And I think as facilitators, we're constantly questioning and challenging some of these things that are so embedded in our culture, in our systems, that if we don't do that, then we start to fall into those traps. You know, we have to not just intellectualize the work, we have to do both. You know, we're intellectualizing, we are, you know, it's it's a personal journey, it's an institutional journey, like it's all of these things, you know, coming together. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a really good question. I just sort of had this like spark when you were talking, like who who is the owner, right, of, of what an activist needs to look like? Right. Who, who is the owner of sort of the oppression Olympic scale? And like when we ourselves subscribe to such a scale and it's nobody's fault, it's just socialization. Right. Like what happens. Right. And so that, you know, facilitators or leaders in this work, we, we have to be like so super intentional and also lean on each other. So, you know, one of the goals I feel like we that we hoped for was that we kind of planted some seeds you know, little seeds, maybe one thing we said on one of the days, like really sunk in. Right. I think that was sort of like going in, especially that first year, like that was the goal. Like, let's just get people thinking. And I remember going back to like that first community conversation about Pisa educators as co-conspirators in Black Lives Matter. At the end, we kind of had a call to action where we're like, okay, like, what do you, what do you, what are you going to do differently? Or what are you going to do? What, what's one little thing. Right. And I remember there being, I don't know if there, it was like this nervousness or, but there was like a little silence and eventually people were saying, you know, this is all so new, right? Like we are just starting to digest this. I think like our next step is just like, having more conversations with the people in our lives or like reading more or, you know, just like, I think at that point I recognized like how early most of us are just culturally on this journey, if you will. No, I think it's so true. I I do remember that long pause and some folks being really honest about where they are. Like they weren't ready to jump into the action step in terms of bringing something back to their school community just yet, because they recognize that they hadn't actually done some of the internal work that needed to happen. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking how much I appreciated that because I think the danger and what I've seen happen so often in independent schools is that people have these good intentions of wanting to jump into action. You know, I've seen it too often and you know they're planning all of these initiatives and programs at the school level at the institutional level and then they they're not sustainable and they fail right because you know there's not enough either buy-in from the community or that the people in the community haven't done the important internal work that needs to happen in order for any of this work to be uh, authentic and sustainable Mm-hmm. And so I think that's also one of the reasons why the two study groups that we hosted were really successful, because we provided that space for people to do the internal work that they needed, that they mm-hmm. really were hungry for. 
Yeah, the, there's that internal work piece. And then there's also got to be, you have to have some kind of group you can go to for support when things get weird, right? <laughs> I feel so lucky to have this relationship with you that we've built kind of over the year, years doing different kinds of equity work. So I can, you know, ask you, hey, this happened. Is that a little weird? You know, like yeah. <laughs> it's problematic and like, you'll give me the real answer. But I think for school leaders, you have to realize like for your Asian faculty and staff, you really need to support them in finding like affinity and support because it's it's too much to do alone. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to part three <laughs> of this study group. I know that there's already, you know, excitement around it. And I, I, I'm looking forward to the next iteration because, you know, as we've talked about for the last 45 minutes, like this is a necessary group. This is what's needed in our independent schools. And this is what um, a piece of, a piece of educators um, are asking for, quite honestly, mm-hmm. you know, and what they need to be able to sustain themselves in working in independent schools. 100%. Thanks for listening to this episode of NAIS Member Voices, The Conversation. You can read this conversation, excerpts from past and upcoming Member Voices episodes, and more in every issue of Independent School Magazine. Find related NAIS resources from this episode by visiting neis.org slash membervoices. Keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes or subscribe to automatically receive a new podcast episode in your feed each month. Please be sure to listen and then rate and review each new episode and go back and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. Also, don't forget, we always want to hear from you. So please send your stories, questions, and comments to membership at nais.org.